join me and follow along as we read from Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 through 7 this morning. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity, your covetedness, must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. This is the word of our Lord. All right, good morning. My name is Matt, and I'm one of the elders, pastors here. Uh, I start this morning by just confessing I have a, a bit of trepidation about this particular text and this particular sermon. Um, we're in the middle of a section of verses, so this is kind of part two of a two-part section in the middle of sections where Paul is essentially telling the Ephesian church, be who you are. In other words, practically, experientially live in the reality of who Jesus has made you and has said that you are. And we've, we've gone through this series of things where he's saying, Jesus calls you to put off this former way of thinking that was yours before you knew Christ and put on a new way of thinking and a new way of acting that is worthy of the gospel and that is a reflection of Jesus' own character and heart. He says here, Jesus is working to remake you in his image, in his likeness, so that we reflect Christ. Well, last week we, d- we discussed this in five categories, and this is just a quick review. But we talked about five categories in the previous text where he says, you're putting off this and you're putting on this. And he says this, you're putting off lying and instead speaking truth. You're putting off uncontrolled, unrighteous anger and putting on self-control. You're putting off stealing and putting on generosity. You're putting off corrupting talk that tears people down and you're instead putting on talk that builds up, that encourages others. And then finally, you're putting off resentment and hateful attitudes, and you're putting on kindness and forgiveness. And it was interesting. Nobody came up to me last week and said, I I am hurt, I'm offended, I'm disappointed that the church is so intolerant or closed-minded, that you're bigoted against liars and haters and thieves. No one said that. You probably didn't feel that. Because we get it. We get the lying's bad. We get stealing is bad. We get the hate, the bitterness, the resentful hearts. We get that those things are bad. They're unhealthy for us, and they're a trespass of God's law. Well, this morning, we come simply to the sixth category of sins that he says, put this off and put on this instead. And as followers of Jesus, we should respond, just as I think many of you did last week, of just trying to identify where am I out of step with what Jesus calls me to? What am I personally going to put off? What am I going to maybe discuss with my community group about? Here's what I want to put on. Here's where I want to grow and to become more like Jesus. But I fear some will take offense this morning simply because Scripture now turns to the topic of sexuality. 
the Bible has not moved ever on the topic of sex, sexuality, gender, marriage, love. But American culture has. American culture has made a very rapid and radical departure from what the Bible has to say about these topics. Things that were unimaginable just a few decades ago are mainstream today. And I think part of the part of the problem, if I could put it that way, is that this is the water we're all swimming in. So as you simply go about your day-to-day schooling, education, work, shopping, recreation, as you consume different forms of entertainment through music and um, theater and movies and sitcoms, the water you're swimming in is indoctrinating you to believe that the Bible is just crazy about this particular topic and that we, as we progress, are getting it more and more right. And I've even heard many claim that the Bible, texts like this, were written for a different time. I've heard it said that, like, Paul was writing to very traditional cultures, had very traditional sexual morals. And so, of course, he could say stuff like this because it was just a completely different time. And the reality is nothing could be further from the truth. Um, Not that many of you remember back to the very first message in this series, but when we introduced the book of Ephesians... We talked a lot about the city of Ephesus, and I'll just remind you of a couple things. Ephesus was actually highly sexualized, much like our culture today. The the central temple of Ephesus, which was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, was the temple of Artemis, or the Greeks called her Diana. Um, I I won't be graphic here, but Diana was this many-breasted icon And the way that people worshipped her was by going up to the temple and sleeping with many of the different cult prostitutes. Ephesus was one of the largest port cities. It was on major trade routes in the ancient world. So men came from far and wide to bow to the idol of sexual expression. The the Christians that Paul is writing to here in this book that's nearly 2,000 years old are coming out of a culture that looked very much like our culture today. They were not a traditional culture. They were not like, well, we've got our sexual ethics all buttoned up. They were engaged in all kinds of practices and all kinds of orientations and beliefs around gender and sex. What Paul points out here, if you look with me at the opening lines of chapter 5, is important because what he's saying here is either you will continue to imitate the patterns of speech and the attitudes and the behaviors of the world that is set against God or just doesn't know God, or you will imitate, you will pattern your life after Jesus. And he's going to go on to say here, you, you cannot love as the world loves and love as Jesus first loved us. They're two different kinds of love, and and they're incompatible with one another. He's saying you must leave the old and embrace the new. And that's actually good news, and we should hear it as good news because we're going to go into the love of Jesus. How did Jesus love us, and what is he actually calling us to, and how is this so hopeful and encouraging? But as I said, I have some fear that some of you will hear it a different way. One big idea this morning, what Paul's saying is following Jesus means practicing holy and sacrificial 
forms of love. Holy and sacrificial. And, and if you didn't know all that was going on out there in our culture today, and I just said, hey, do you have a, a pure love, a committed love, and a sacrificial love where you are giving and investing in incredible ways to build up other people, we'd be like, yeah, build up and invest and sacrifice. And by the way, this, we didn't plan this this way. This is just one of those funny or interesting providences of God that we're talking about love on the week of Valentine's Day. Some of you maybe celebrated Valentine's Day this past week. If you don't know, St. Valentine was a third century Christian clergyman who essentially invested his life preaching the gospel and encouraging other Christians around him who were being persecuted for their faith by the Roman Empire. Um, St. Valentine was arrested. He was beaten and beheaded by Emperor Claudius II for preaching the gospel. So, of course, today we celebrate this great man by spending $26 billion on candy hearts and chocolates and Mylar balloons. And there's supposed to be a paradox there. Like that, that sound of like the record scratching, like, like what? St. Valentine loved by literally laying down his life for the marginalized and the persecuted. And we celebrate St. Valentine by giving each other little chalk hearts that say, be mine, love you, text me, or you're hot. And honestly, we don't really celebrate Hallmark holidays, as we call them, in our household. But if you did, that's great. I'm not offended. Um, I want you to see a stark difference in what different people call love. Because that's essentially what Paul is saying. As he's writing to new believers who are being saved out of a pagan culture, he's saying, do you see a stark difference in the way the old man, the old woman loved and the way Jesus loved you? And calls you to love one another. So four simple points this morning. Each of them start with a C. There's a call here. There's a caution. There's a particular character that he calls us to. And then there's a contrast between these two loves. So let's begin in verses 3 and 5 with this call away from immorality. Or a call away from the worldly natural forms of love. And you'll notice in verse 3 he uses three words or four words in English. He talks about sexual immorality, impurity, and covetousness. Then in verse 5, you can draw lines between these words and notice the connection. He uses the exact same three Greek words, except in the kind of like adjectival form, like sexually immoral, impure, and covetous. I want to take just a moment with each of those words. Sexual immorality, or sexual immorality, or the sexually immoral translates the word porneia, which you probably recognizes the root word in pornography. Um, basically, all the Greek speakers of Jesus' day and the, the days of the apostles understood that porneia, sexual immorality, was all sexual activity outside of the safety, the, the boundary, the comforts of, or the commitment of, I should say, um, a monogamous heterosexual marriage. So it included things like in their culture, like fornication and adultery and homosexuality were very common in Ephesus. And this word is describing, this is sexual activity outside of that marriage. Um, the second word, impurity, translates akatharsia, which some of you with a, a counseling or psychology background may recognize the word catharsis. What is a catharsis? Well, it's a 
It's a cleansing, right? And sometimes, like, I don't know if certain therapists in here do this, but, like, it's like you can scream and just, just let it out. And it's this, it's this cleansing of your soul, you know. But there are different practices. They may say do this or express this or process this. And it's a catharsis. It's a cleansing. Well, it's ah catharsis, which means not cleansed, not clean. It's, it's something that's still filthy. That's this word. And then the word covetousness is, is interesting because it's broader than just sexuality. He's, it's a word that's like an insatiable greed. It's like I always want more and more and more. And this word in the Greek, as it was often used, had an exploitive type of bent to it. It's like I want to take something from someone else and kind of exploit them. Okay, and I want to just pause here and say, what, what are the attitudes of our culture? Again, kind of the water that we're all swimming in toward these things. Pornea, arcatharsia, and covetousness or greed. Okay, I, I, think, I think ironically our culture does two things that seem like they don't go together. One is that we trivialize these things. There's constant jokes. There's a demeaning of the purity of like sex in marriage. And it's like, oh, that's a bad thing. Well, it's not a bad thing. It's a beautiful thing. It's an amazing thing. It, it was designed by God, okay? So we will talk positive, positively about sex and sexuality in this church because they're, they're God's idea. But our culture tends to trivialize them. Like, it's no big deal what you do with your body. It's no big deal what you do with your desires or your mind. And then at the very same time, opposite of trivializing this, they, they deify it. Like, they make a god of it, an idol, like, this is all important. My desires, my identity, how I orient myself or, or feel oriented is this all-encompassing, all-important, deified thing. And as I mentioned before, we've taken shameful things out of back alleys and back rooms, and we've literally marched them down Main Street and said, pride. We are proud of the things that used to be done in secret. And we pat ourselves on the back and we say we are enlightened and this is progress. Well, what does Paul say about these three things? Is there pride? Is there progress? He, no, he says these things must not even be named among you. In other words, there, there shouldn't be a hint of these things, let alone an open celebration and an excitement over them. He goes on and says, let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead there should be thanksgiving. And I think this is interesting, and I think this is sad, that you ever notice that Christians have a tendency to ban certain behaviors and then turn right around and make jokes about them? Oh, this is off limits. And then it's like, but, but ha ha, it's like this little like inside joke, or that's what she said. And it just makes a hilarious punchline. I would never do X, Y, Z myself. And that's the sort of thing he's talking about. Of like, if it's wrong to engage in certain behaviors, then it's wrong to make light of or be amused by those very same things. The three words he uses here about things that we talk about, the, the first word means like obscene, shameful talk that has no place in Christian community. The second word is literally, if you could see it in the Greek, it's, uh, it's moron words. Morotslagia, just foolish talk, just literally like 
empty. It's the babbling of fools. Just maybe it's not uh, inherently evil talk, but it's just running the mouth. Like I can't shut it off because that's, if you go back to the Proverbs, that's what fools do. And then crude joking is like vulgar, coarse, indecent humor that has no place. It's, it's this stuff that's like you listen to a lot of comedians today, sitcoms, rom-coms, theater, that just normalize and trivialize these kinds of conversation. And he's like, not only should you not be practicing these things, we shouldn't be making light of them and trivializing them and joking about them while saying like, well, I would never do that. Now, what I'm saying right now probably sounds intolerant to some of you and, and closed-minded, like prudish. Some of you probably are thinking like the church needs to lighten up, like live and let live, don't be so judgmental. Um, and that's how people in Paul's day, when he first wrote this, that's how they would have felt too. Lighten up, Paul. Everyone does this stuff. It's not a big deal. And Paul writes this nonetheless as the Spirit inspires these words. God inspires these words, showing us that the ethics of the kingdom of God are not designed to appease the ethics of the kingdom of man. They're designed to express the heart of the king. The ethics of the kingdom of God are designed to express the heart of King Jesus. And I want to say this before I go on to some other th things. Like, I think what's happening around the topics that Paul addresses in this text very specifically are kind of the front line of the culture war in America. So what do we do about this? I'm going to give you three options, two of which I don't think are an option for a Christian church, one of which I'm going to recommend. Number one, agreeing with culture against Scripture really isn't an option for followers of Jesus. Like redefining scripture to fit the spirit of the age, like we would forever be doing that. And different cultures would be redefining different texts because America is all about the free expression of our sexuality. Other cultures are not about that, but they are about other things. And the, the spirit of following Jesus is not, how do I get scripture to sound like it supports the spirit of this current broken manifestation of humanity? Or signaling at least that I'm an ally of these kinds of people. That may feel winsome. It may feel compassionate. It may feel loving to just like jump in and support all these people with whatever they're choosing. But according to this text, it's not as compassionate as you think. And I'll show you why in a moment. You know what else I don't think is an option is being self-righteous and judgmental. Um, just having a critical spirit of going around and just hyper-analyzing other people's sin and saying, like, that's the stuff that brings God's judgment, not the stuff that, that I practice or I do. If you actually read the Gospels, read the stories of Jesus as he interacts with sexual sinners, by the way, pursuing them, he doesn't sit back and wait for them to come find him and say, Rabbi or Master or Messiah, whatever they thought of him, like, hey, I, I need help or I don't need help. I need you to be an ally. Jesus sought these people out. Read the stories like of the Samaritan woman at the well who was on like her sixth or seventh husband but wasn't married to him yet, was just sleeping with him. Read the story of the woman caught in adultery and you see a very different tone coming from Jesus' heart, coming from Jesus' lips, 
than what is often associated with like right-wing Christianity of just judgmental, lambasting, hating, feeling superior to. So I don't think that's an option either. I think we just take both those things off the table. And I think what we are called to is what Paul said just a few verses earlier in the same context, which is to speak the truth in love, which is that if you have friends or if you yourself are wrestling through some of these issues, I want people to be able to experience love and truth and grace in the context of church community, to not feel like I'm run off and I got to figure this out on my own, but to feel like all right, I, I'm trying to love Jesus. I'm trying to work through some things. I hear this everywhere I go. The Bible says this. I'm not exactly sure what that means, but to, to stay and work through, how do we grow in love and holiness together? But there is no question, the Bible says, do not practice what God calls sin. Don't see how close you can get to it. Don't look for a workaround or a new definition of something. Don't joke about it. Don't make it a regular part of your life through the entertainment that you consume. Why? I mean, why, why am I saying it that strongly? I'm saying it that strongly because I think the text says it that strongly, but also it goes on now in the next two verses with this caution. Listen to this warning, verse five, for you may be sure of this. He's talking about certainty that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Now, I've often been told by other professing believers, including some who have left our church, that Christians can just agree to disagree about these things because sex and sexuality are not gospel issues. It's like, why does God care what I do in my bedroom? What does God care what I do with my body? And more and more professing Christians say directly to me and say on the interwebs, like, you can be gay and be a Christian. You can be trans and be a Christian. You can be bi and be a Christian. You can be a major player in hookup culture and be a Christian. You can be a serial divorcee who just, you get divorced and remarried and divorced and remarried and divorced and remarried. You treat it flippant and you be a Christian. You can do whatever you want. You can be open in your relationship with your spouse and be a Christian. I've heard all of these things. And meanwhile, the Bible says here in this text, let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the children of disobedience. The Bible says this is a gospel issue. Those who practice these things have no inheritance in the kingdom of God. So you see why I'm not ready to just throw in the towel and be like, okay, you're right, I was wrong, and just start preaching what everyone else in culture is saying about these issues? While supporting someone else's lifestyle seems like the loving and tolerant and open-minded thing to do, if people's eternal lives are really at stake, like this text says, then the truly loving thing would be to continue to walk alongside them in love, but to help them hear the voice of God calling them to a holy and sacrificial love like Jesus. Now, as I read these verses, please, please hear me out. The point is not that a person who has committed sexual sin is going straight to hell. That is not what he's saying any more than he would say, you've committed one other sin, you're right out. 
The point is not that sexual sin is the unpardonable sin. I've heard people teach that. It's not. It's just not. The point is not that God is just perpetually angry and worked up against broken people who are struggling with something. The point is not that people who wrestle with what they believe or think or do have no place in the church. That's not the point. The point is this. The point is this. This is so important. Paul's saying the unrepentant practice of any sin is evidence of something deeper going on in your soul that separates you from a loving God, that puts you at odds with God. And the reason that he uses, I think, the word idolater here is he's saying actions, the practice of any sin is often a reflection of I ultimately love and worship and serve someone or something else with the the first and best energies of my heart. And the Bible has a word for that. It's an idolater. Okay? And in Paul's day, the idol was literally that, that stone or that wood or whatever, that carving that people would bow down to, this literal thing. I think in our day and age, we, we don't think of idols that way. We don't think of counterfeit gods that way. But they're more like our preferences, our opinions, our ideologies. And we do, in a sense, love and bow down and worship these things and say, you can set the trajectory for my life. I, I don't love God. I don't follow God first and foremost. I follow an ideology. I follow a preference. So there's a strong caution here that I don't want you to miss. And I don't think it's coming from Paul in a heart of, of anger or judgment or frustration or venting. I think it's coming from the heart of love that we're going to come back to now in verses 1 and 2. Now, I want you to see a couple points of hope here. I did the, got the bad stuff here out of the way. Because I want you to see here that he talks about the kind of character that turns away from immorality or the sexual practices that are popular in our world. Because a part of the gospel solution, friends, is always not simply I'm taking off certain behaviors and I'm trying to put on other behaviors. And some of you may know this, that when it comes to like sexuality and sexual practices, putting something off and just putting something else in its place feels like a Band-Aid. It feels like it's not addressing what's going on in my heart. It feels completely foreign People feel like I was made for this. I was wired for this. And you're just telling me to put on something else? Well, no, because what he shows us here three ways is that we need to see who we are in Christ and live accordingly. Number one, notice verse one, he says, you are beloved children. And so many people that I have counseled that have gotten into all kinds of trouble, and they would say they're in trouble with their sexuality have been living like orphans. They're like, I, I never was really loved or accepted at home. I, I'm, I'm desperate for affirmation, and this person affirmed me. What's so wrong about that? And part of what Paul's saying is, you, you've got to remember, you are not an orphan. You are loved by the Father. You are pursued by the Father. There is never a moment in your life where he is not shedding his unconditional love on you, his un unconditional commitment to you and to your good. You are beloved children. Act accordingly. Secondly, he says, verse 3, we are saints. And I think it's interesting that in so many of Paul's letters as he's writing to like the Corinthian culture, 
highly sexualized. The Ephesian culture, highly sexualized. He's not like, you're a saint, you know, if and when you live a holy life. He's saying, no, 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 you, you don't become a saint by living a holy life. You live a holy life because God made you a saint. And it's a word that could mean holy ones, but it's also a word that means like you're set apart from a common use. Like literally your body, your mind are set apart from a common use to a holy and a special use. And he's saying that's, that's who all of you are. And again, I've talked to friends who are like, I'm in this because I've already made these mistakes and I feel so dirty. I feel so filthy. I don't want to show up in church because I feel shame. I feel brokenness. Everyone can, I, I feel like everyone can just like see right through me. And I want you to hear what he's saying. He's saying, no, 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 you, you're saints. If you're called by God, if you're loved by Jesus, like stop looking at your own filth and saying, well, I treat myself a certain way because other people have treated me. Other people have treated me like garbage, so I've just kind of learned to treat myself that way. And I've heard things like that. But that's not who you are to God. You're not, you're not garbage. You're not filthy. You are holy. You are loved. You are beautiful. So live accordingly. And then finally, and I know we stopped short of this verse, but I want you to see it. Verse 8, he also says, we are light. He says, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord, so walk as children of light. And again, it's not that we become light by walking a particular way. He says you walk a particular way because you have been made light, like Jesus. So live accordingly. And there may be someone here this morning that you already feel defeated. You're like, I'm just going to continue on this track because I've, I've tried. I've tried to overcome an addiction. I've tried to stop. Um, I've tried, I, I've told this, this next girlfriend, she's going to be the first one that I ever do this the right way in the right order. And you just feel defeated. And I, I don't want you to feel defeated. I want you to feel encouraged by the words of St. Paul to hear him say, you, you are not this crushed and helpless person just at the whim of your own emotions and feelings and opinions and perspectives and carried around by the waves of culture. He's like, you know, you're a beloved child and you're a saint and you are light in the Lord. You have more in you because of the work of Jesus than what you maybe see right now, but we are for you and God is for you. Now, finally, let's see this beautiful contrast to the love of the world. And I think it's interesting that this section that warns about the allure and the dangers of immorality begins by reminding us about the love of Jesus. So go back to verse 1, where he says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And here's, here's the contrast that Paul is showing us. First of all, again, he's saying worldly love often takes from others for self-gratification. And you've all seen that. I, I would venture to guess you've all experienced that from someone. A taking kind of love where, to use other words, um, like hookup culture and adultery are very often like, I'm, I'm not willing to commit to you and to give myself fully to you. There may be a better option out there for me later, but I would like to take something from you to satisfy my own desires for like five minutes. 
And then I know even non-Christians who wake up the next morning and are like, so much shame, so much pain, so much brokenness, so much hurt. Is this the only way there is to know love in our culture? Much of the conversation around sex and gender in our culture today is just like this insatiably greedy, lustful thing. It's like, I want what I want, and nobody can tell me who I am or how I should feel or what I can and cannot do with my own body. That sounds a lot like the idol of autonomy. What do you love first and foremost? Me, doing what I want. And friends, if I thought that were biblical and if I thought it would lead you ultimately to a place of contentment and happiness, then I would tell you that. But I think the Bible is pure and I think the Bible is true and I think this is filled with love and hope for you that by steering you in a different direction, you actually can find hope and satisfaction and true love. Our culture uses people, it exploits people, and then it discards people. It's like wash, rinse, repeat. Find the next person, use them, exploit them, and discard them. They're no longer useful. You will never find Jesus treating someone that way. Jesus does not use you. He does not exploit you. He does not take from you. He does not discard you when you are no longer useful. The Bible actually says he does the opposite. Jesus comes seeing your brokenness and mine, and he comes and he just gives himself away and says, like, you're not going to turn to me and know true love, but I want you to know true love. So he gives up his life. And the words that Paul uses here are a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And we're supposed to look back to the Old Testament and remember all of those spotless, innocent animals being massacred and their blood shed and their, being, their bodies burned and this scent going up to God, which it's a terrible scent if you smell burning flesh. But to God, it's like it's beautiful because it's covering sin and I can forgive you and broken people you can draw near. That's why it's fragrant. <laughs> because sinners can draw near to a loving, good, holy God through ultimately the sacrifice of Jesus for us. So I said there's a contrast. If worldly love is taking from others for self-gratification, then what he says in verses 1 and 2 is that Christ-like love sacrifices for other people for their benefit. And whatever you think about everything else I've said this morning, I hope you can get on board with that, that wouldn't it be beautiful if the church were a place where we're all sacrificing for one another and for others beyond these walls and just saying, like, I want to love you in a way that gives up my own rights, that gives up my own preferences and need to be right or whatever it is in order that you benefit. See, our culture says love is love, right? We've all heard that. It's on posters everywhere. It's an assertion that all forms and expressions of love are equally valid. That's the point of the statement. And it's a lie. It is not true that all forms of love are equally valid. There's a massive difference between a love that distorts how God made you and uses and exploits other people or allows you to be used and exploited and a love like Jesus that embodies sacrifice. Again, that theme, following Jesus means 
practicing holy and sacrificial forms of love. Uh, now, one interesting thing, and I'm done. Verse 4, how, how, do you, how do you break free of this stuff if it does have a hold on you? Maybe an addiction, for example. Well, what if, what if gospel gratitude is the thing that's meant to break you free? Gospel gratitude. Look at verse 4. He says, instead, so he's saying, instead of all these things like immorality and crude speech and coarse talk and jokes that are funny, but they're not funny because they're making light of sin, he says, instead of all that, let there be thanksgiving. And if you're like, I don't get it. What would you expect him to say? Instead of enjoying your sexuality how you want, um, why don't you go be a boring, pious prude, and at least you get to go to heaven when you die. And I think that's how a lot of the church hears this. Okay, fine, I'll do it, I'll be holy, but man, it's going to be boring and self-righteous and constant frustration, or, or my favorite that I hear all the time, and I hate it. God wants you to be holy, not happy as if those are, those are two different things, but they're, they're not things that God sets apart from one another and says you can, you can either be happy and send your brains out or you can be holy and buckle up because it's going to be a rough ride. It's not going to be fun. No, he says, instead of those things, let there be thanksgiving. Marty's not in here, but today is our anniversary, so I have a, a marriage illustration um, when I'm especially grateful for my wife and I'm like usually bragging on her to like a neighbor or a friend or one of you and just saying like she did this thing and like she's incredible and I love the way she thinks through things and processes things and pushbacks on, pushes back on me and helps me think through things. When I'm doing that, do you know what I find? Is that that, that gratitude and the thanksgiving is literally the expression of gratitude. When I'm thinking that way and thanking her or grateful for her, I find I'm eager to discover her needs and desires and to give myself to serve her. So I think this is a key that we can understand the context of human relationships is when I remember how my wife loves me and loves our children and loves so many of you and is a lover of strangers, she's an incredibly hospitable person, she sacrifices for other people, she makes other people's lives better, I want to sacrifice for her in return. Like faithfulness when you're grateful for your spouse is a really, really easy thing. And the inverse is true. Like, and if you're going off to work and you're complaining about your spouse to someone, be very careful if you find a listening ear who's like, oh, tell me more about her. She sounds terrible. Anyway, I'll be there for you. Like, watch out. Because an ungrateful complaining spirit is a breeding ground for unfaithfulness. You know, a lot of people, I'm not saying this is everyone's story, but a lot of people that I've talked to that would say, I either profess to know Christ or I used to, and I've kind of deconstructed, I no longer would say that I believe in Jesus. There's this place in their story where they acknowledge, many of them, I changed my opinion, I changed my moral ethics around sexuality, um, frankly, because God didn't give me what I wanted. And I've heard that over and over again. All I wanted was this. Is that so bad? God never came through. So, and sometimes there's anger or deep sadness. 
And look, I get it. I understand. We are made for relationship. And if that doesn't come easily for certain people and they feel sadness, I'm not going to stand up here and be like, well, shame on you. Or even if you feel anger or frustration, I'm not going to say shame on you. We were wired for that. We, we desire that. God himself is Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. There's relationship. So this is, again, why I'm saying we, we can't just get rid of our friends who struggle thinking through, processing through things when they're, they're desperate for healthy relationships in their lives. But the church should be a compassionate place, a compassionate community that's like, let's talk about that. Because I don't want to see you go down this road, but I am here for you and I love you. And I'm like, Paul, I'm cautioning you, but like, let's keep doing life together. Christian, if you see Jesus giving his life, we're going to celebrate this in just a moment. His body breaking on the cross for you, his blood being poured out for you because that's the way he loved you. He's like, I will give myself for you so that you can come home reconciled to the Father. The, the relationship completely healed. You unbelievably blessed. And you see the Father's love for you. And you're like, I'm going to be grateful and I'm going to talk about the things about Jesus and the Father and the Spirit that I so much enjoy and the benefits that I don't deserve then as you are declaring with your words, God is worthy of my worship. God is worthy of my soul. God is worthy of my body. He's worthy of my sexuality. Then you find a contentment and joy that the world simply cannot offer. And would to God that the church be a community of people that as anyone interacts with us, baseline is this in this text. These are people who love not by taking something from me to benefit self. These are people who lay down their own rights, sacrifice their own resources to bring benefit to the lives of other people. They look like Jesus. I want to hear more of that story. I want to be changed by that kind of love.